We've been asked by Brother Eddie to mark Psalm 174, and we joyously, of course, are happy to do that as we look forward to that time when we can joyously join our voices together and hymn that. We might mention in, in amongst those announcements that Brother Ted led us in earlier that we certainly are, are many of which we can be mindful in terms of those that are sick. But let me also add to that the fact that we continue to enjoy some puzzles and other things made available to the congregation. Those for Revelation, the second chapter, we've put those into the rack there, and we'll be passing those out as our service ends and as we depart the building today. Let's continue to think about that study of the Revelation, and also tonight, we will look into the second chapter of the Revelation during the course of our sermon this evening. So let me invite each of us to come back as we look at some of those seven churches of Asia and try to notice the means by which we can still learn valuable and needed lessons today about the behavior of those seven churches so that you and I can learn from their mistakes and also to not, of course, make those same mistakes. This morning, as you might have noted in the lesson title in the bulletin, we shall in fact give some consideration to the matter of modest dress. As you might have noted, we began somewhat briefly a series of lessons some two weeks ago in which we chose to turn attention to some of those cultural features and matters that we each are called upon to face rather dramatically and rather often. Things that the world often sees no difficulty with, sees no problem with, but yet from the Word of God we appreciate that there must be some concern and there must be some thought. And so it was in that opening lesson that we turned our attention to dancing. And we studied that in some detail and came to the conclusion from the Word of God that there, of course, is no place for that in the life of the one who is a Christian. That is to say, other than a man with his own wife perhaps dancing in private. But now we come today to another study, one that deals with our dress, the way that we choose to attire ourselves, the way that we choose to adorn ourselves with clothing, if you will. In each instance, as has been our choice and as that which must be our demand, what saith the Scripture, the haunting question of Romans 4 verse 3? It isn't our interest what a person may think or what an individual or a group may surmise. Our only question is, what does the Bible have to say about this? Here are some opening comments. The Bible frequently, of course, makes reference to various and sundry types of clothing, Everything from loincloths to veils to cloaks. And as we give thought to the way in which the context leads us to appreciate them, often there is some interesting things to be said. In fact, even John the Baptist adorned himself, did he not, in a garment of camel's hair and also a leather girdle. That statement of Matthew chapter 3, verses 3 and 4 tell us that even John addressed in a way that was perhaps not unusual for a person living out far removed from the city, but yet those in the city dressed far differently. That leads me to make these comments at the bottom. Clothing clearly varies dramatically from one culture and place in the world to another. Those living in the jungles of Africa would dress very differently than you and I do here in the state of Tennessee. Our question is not that which relates to culture. Our question far more powerfully is this. Are there principles revealed and set forth in the Word of God that in fact are binding any and everywhere, no matter where a person may live, such principles being that which states powerfully 
how a person should or should not dress. It'll be our goal this morning in the moments allotted to us to give some thought to what does the Bible say about dress. As we begin that study, here's some information about the human body that is very vital. Because after all, that clothing that one chooses to wear or not to wear as the case may be, clearly has reference to the human body, the human frame. Isn't it true that human body is an absolute masterpiece from almost every conceivable angle? From an engineering standpoint, it's truly remarkable. Any person who has studied that matter of engineering knows that with the movement of the shoulder, the movement of the elbow, the movement of the wrist and fingers, one has full three-dimensional capability of motion, and an engineer finds that remarkable. That person who's interested in optics would find to this day the characteristics of the human eye to be truly astounding. Even a study of it at one point was one of the strongest elements that began to bring Charles Darwin to realize there's something wrong with evolution. Beyond that, there's the character of the brain that, of course, controls it all and allows movement of those muscles and the features of the body so that that which is wished can be accomplished. All the while, it's certainly fair to say that that human body, as we've described it, brings us to this point. It is the result of the creative genius, of course, of the God of heaven. Far from any result of evolution, far from any matter of happenstance or haphazard characteristic, it is the fact that the psalmist said, I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. Psalm 139 verse 14. In Genesis 2-7, in the realization of the creation... We find there, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. That statement of Genesis 2-7 then reminds us that it is God who fashioned that body, made it with its capability and its variety, and that now asks us to ponder this. What about the viewing of it? If you will, its presentation in public ways. We do remember that Adam and Eve, in Genesis, the second chapter, verse 25, they were naked and they were not ashamed. In that early dawn of time, the man and his wife were able to proceed about in a naked fashion without any clothing, and they were unashamed because sin had not entered the world at that time. They still, in both mind and body, were the pristine characters that God had fashioned. Never a sinful thought had crossed their mind. Never a sinful deed had been done by the body. Never a sinful word entering or leaving from their lips. There had been no sin until that point. But might we quickly notice what transpired in the verses that followed. We do remember that the woman first and then the man partook of that fruit which had been outlawed of them by God. And isn't it interesting, the very first thing that they did... The very first thing that they did after realizing, and it says their eyes were opened and they made themselves of fig leaves aprons, attempting to conceal the characteristics of the body. Once sin had entered the world, it was no longer the appropriate thing to display the body in a public fashion. Even the fact that they were man and wife, even the fact that they, of course, had been joined by God in the beautiful matter of matrimony, 
might we, of course, appreciate from that the vitality of the lesson. One must ever think seriously about the presentation of this body in a public way. After all, there are some features of the body that are easily public. A person's face, his or her hands. But there are also portions of that body that are not to be viewed publicly. That is to say, they have been presented in such a fashion and their nature is such that they are to be concealed. Those parts of both the male and female anatomy that really are those private things. And so it is that Adam and Eve, of course, didn't do as good a job as ought to have been done concealing that. Those aprons were insufficient. And so in verse 21 of Genesis chapter 3, God made them clothes to, in fact, conceal in an appropriate and adequate way. As we come near the bottom of that slide, doesn't that then point us to the realization today? What about the clothing that we often see portrayed in advertisements? Often we see it worn by individuals with whom we work, or perhaps we see them as we drive along the roadway, or perhaps are in a discount store. Is the clothing such that it would be descriptive of that which conceals what God wanted concealed? Let's study this more thoroughly and also look at some New Testament verses that relate to it. I make the presentation of this slide to point us to what has been the thinking of some throughout the ages. It is certainly no surprise that there are those who enjoy revealing as much, it seems, as they can, even to the point of whole and complete nakedness. The ancient Greeks, in fact, took great pride in that. Maybe you're aware that many of the gymnasiums, the very same word we use today for that which is at our schools, but those original gymnasiums constructed by the Greeks, they came to be such that the male athletes who in fact practiced there practiced fully naked because they had an aesthetic appreciation for what the human body presented and the beauty that went along with it. There are still those today who do not veer very far from that same framework. There are beaches that are proclaimed as nudist beaches where those individuals, as we might expect, proceed to have no clothes on in doing what they do. In Europe, there are walking trails that, in fact, are nudist walking trails, those that hike and walk on them, as you might expect, wear no clothing. The point is, there are still those in our day who seem to want to present all of what the body has to offer, unaware of the fact or unappreciative of the fact that that is far removed from the intent of the God of heaven. So much of that which you and I see from the Word of God is this. The human body was not fashioned as a matter of public spectacle. The human body is not for that of public spectacle. It is not for flaunting in public. The body was made for a different purpose, and it was made with a different reason in mind. Isn't it a shame then that so much of the advertisements around us are exactly opposite to the biblical perspective? Have you and I noticed that so many of the advertisements either in magazines, newspapers, TV, or internet are such that the basic motif behind it is this, wear these clothes so that you'll appear attractive and, and sexy. Eat this food so that you'll appear attractive and sexy. Use this lotion so that you'll appear attractive and sexy. 
again, the point is the body was not made to appear that way except to one person, and that's our spouse. And thus, all that advertisement, though it obviously works, and though it appeals to so many, is fully against the grain of that which is the proclamation of the wonderful Word of God. For that reason, let's look into the sixth chapter of 1 Corinthians this morning. In what time that remains, giving some focus to a few of the verses to be found in it. As we listen to what is the body made for and what is to be noted as it relates to these matters of dress modestly. I've listed some of the features beginning in 1 Corinthians 6. We'll not read the entirety of that chapter, but suffice it to say the church in Corinth faced some problems. And we have noted those in times past in our studies. But as we arrive at the sixth chapter, we find that they were going to courts of law one against another, and Paul reprimanded them for that. But as we arrive at verses 13 and following, there is a very clear undercurrent of sexuality that Paul discusses, and it has to be also corrected, and they need to be taught some things. Beginning in verse number 13, let's notice, in fact, what this verse highlights. Meats for the, for the belly, and belly for meats, but God shall destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. One of our first principles then of the morning will be this one, the latter part of verse 13. It says, the body is not for fornication. We learn interestingly and powerfully that the body is not for fornication. It wasn't made for that purpose. It wasn't fashioned for that goal or motive. It was not put in place for that objective. The body was not made for fornication. Did you notice what that followed? Starting the verse, he said, meats for the belly and the belly for meats. Paul hearkens us to an understanding of the nature of God's creative and the design that went along with it. The stomach, for example. The stomach was made for the digestion of food. It wasn't made to digest motor oil, nor was it made to digest Vaseline or steel items. It was made for the digestion of food. And by the same token, food was made for the stomach. We notice that oats were made for the body. It would be rather futile and useless to put oats in a car's engine or to put corn into, in fact, something like the transmission of an automobile. It wasn't made for that. In exactly the same way, Paul says the human body wasn't made for fornication. Not for the propagation of lust, not for the realization of enhancing or encouraging such thoughts. It rather says the human body was made for the Lord. Verse 13. That principle alone goes a long way to helping us realize that the way in which we conduct ourselves with regard to the body, the way we dress it and adorn it and present it, it should be in response to the Lord and to the fact that it's for His glory and His benefit. It is not to be flaunted in such a way that brings low and lustful thoughts to ourselves or others. In fact, such flies in the face of what the body was made for. That verse again closes by saying, the body is not for fornication. Our world, it seems, has little understanding or at least little appreciation for that simple statement, doesn't it? 
Again, all those advertisements that lift up, eat this, use this lotion, wear this clothing, so that others will appreciate just how beautiful your body is and be attracted to the nature of what it is. The body wasn't made for that. That was not its purpose and design. But you'll notice further, there are more principles to be noted. Beyond verse 13, let's notice verse 15. Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of an harlot? God forbid. In light of that, well, let's consider these thoughts concerning it as well. With our highlight to the need for us to exalt Christ and to glorify God with the deeds and the matters of the body. Verse 15 has focused our attention to say this. Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Now, Paul asks that question in a very interesting way. He asks it in the Greek fashion, in such a way that he's asserting what ought to be obvious. In essence, he says, don't you know that your bodies are the members of Christ? In essence, playing upon them to appreciate, certainly you're aware of this fact. Certainly you have been apprised of this since you came to be members of the church and aware of that which the church stands for. Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? As this is written in an obvious way, it brings us to this comment. And as much as our bodies are thus, that which gives thought to membership in Christ, that means what the body does and the way the body appears and the way that we allow the body to be presented should be ever reminding of us and others of exactly what that verse highlights. Does it remind others that we're members of the body of Christ? Is what I wear an open signature of the fact that I'm a Christian? Or do I look more like a prostitute? More like one who has little if any interest in matters godly. One that has little or any interest in matters of helping others appreciate godliness. What we wear is one of the first things that others will see about us as we meet them on the street or in the workplace. Do they have a godly disposition in thought when they see us? Or does their mind begin to dip to the depths of the gutter? It is a good question, isn't it? And as we give thought, notice Paul had to tell the church in Corinth these things. It would certainly appear the church in Corinth wasn't dressing as they ought to have been dressing. They too were dressing in ways that reminded of fornication, that reminded of activities at the pagan temples, that reminded of the things even culture called into question. It is true, isn't it, that our dress should be reminding of the fact that we're members of Christ's body. We are His church. We were bought with a price, as we'll read in just a moment. I would ask you to notice another verse, though, before... We come to those, and that's verse number 18. Verse 18 begins very simply with a very short sentence. Two words, flee fornication. Now, as we've discussed fornication this morning, we haven't gone so far as to fully define it, but we appreciate that it, of course, relates to that immoral sexual activity of whatever form or type it may have taken. There are many encouragements or inducements to that kind of activity. And let's notice verse 18. Flee fornication. 
Every sin that a man doeth is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. Encouragements to fornication. We understand from passages such as Romans 1, verses 31 and 32 and others, that when one encourages sin in the life of another, he is as guilty as they are. And so if I so conduct myself, or you, that we encourage sin in someone else, we are guilty before God because we have induced or encouraged them to sin. We notice how important that is, particularly in regard to dress. We understand that the way a person dresses may not lead to the open sexual act of fornication, but if it is an encouragement to even the mental activity of such. And didn't the Lord say in Matthew 5, 28, that if a man looks on a woman to lust after her, he hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. If then a man or woman so dresses so that they encourage those lustful thoughts of adultery in the heart and the mind of another, they are just as guilty as the person who's had the thoughts. With those interesting considerations in mind, Paul said, flee fornication. He didn't say, strive to get as close to it as you can without verging into it. He didn't say, meddle or tamper with it. He said, flee it. And that word means to shun, to avoid. And we each understand what it means to flee. One doesn't remain in the vicinity of that from which one has fled. He gets as far away from it as circumstances will allot. That takes on an added interest to you and me today, given the verb tense. In fact, the verb tense, as I've listed for our consideration, is this. It's imperative in mood, active in voice, and present in its tense. I say all that to say this, when an imperative Greek mood is employed, it has all the force of a command. To the Corinthians, Paul, by command and thrust of God, said, flee fornication. They were not left with the option. And since that's a present tense, it is just as needful and vital today as it was then. You and I must flee fornication. That means to never wear anything that may be an inducement to lustful or lewd thoughts in the mind of another. Such is wholly inappropriate to a Christian lifestyle. Isn't it sad then to notice what a war we wage given the culture in which we live? So many give not the slightest thought to what they wear, it would appear. There are those who seemingly wear as close to nothing as they think they get by with. They have little interest or concern what thoughts may appear in the mind of another. Those who run down the sidewalks as we drive. There are ladies who basically wear only that which is the most basic covering of the upper part of their body. Men and women alike wear shorts that conceal as mightily little of the lower part of the body as possible. And they seemingly have no interest in doing anything else. It is a tragedy of gigantic proportion, isn't it? And here we're told to flee fornication, to remain completely removed and distant from it. It is to be noted how that, that leads us to verses 19 and 20, the last two verses in the chapter. Those that might well serve as our lesson text. What, Paul said? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, 
which are God's. Isn't it amazing the questions then that come to us? In light of those concluding remarks, in many ways those summarize the thrust of the last half of that chapter. As you give some thought to these remarks concerning them, might we notice again that Paul asks that question in a way that asserts what they ought to have known. Do you not know, verse 19, that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost? As Christians, the Holy Ghost through the Word dwells in us. Does what I wear and what you wear manifest that truth? If there is disharmony, if there's disunity between them, if what we wear, in fact, does not bear the earmarks and the rightful character of that indwelling of the Spirit through the Word, then there's obviously a problem. And it's not with the Holy Spirit. It's with our choice of conduct, isn't it? And our choice of attire that we wear. It is to be noted too, verse 19 says, "...you are bought with a price." As Christians, we come then to this rather amazing thought. As Christians, Christ bought us. He purchased His church and we're parts of it. We've been bought with a price and therefore, since He owns us, it's His decision what we wear, not ours. What has He dictated? That the attire should be that which doesn't flaunt the body. It shouldn't be that which openly reveals that which is not to be revealed. For that may well produce lustful thoughts in the mind of another. And it may in fact lead others to have less and less appreciation for that precious church for which He died. Our clothing then, if we're males, we shouldn't wear shorts that are too short for it's too revealing. And we shouldn't go about bare in the upper part of the body. For that in fact may well be the very thing that leads others into problems. Women too. Many skirts or skirts or shorts that are too short simply are unacceptable in the eyes of God. Tops that are too low or that bear the body in the midst also unacceptable in the sight of God. All of that reminds us, doesn't it, that what we wear today, just as it was in days gone by in Corinth, does matter to God. He's watching everything that we wear. Sometimes we note today that clothing is highlighted as a matter of personal choice. Many youngsters, when they reach the teenage years, they want the right and the independent nature of selecting what they want to wear. Sometimes they see it as a statement of their personal independence. We as parents must be cautious. As long as they choose that which is modest and that which is appropriate, there isn't any problem. But when they select things that would be inappropriate or unbecoming of a person interested in matters godly, then we would have to step in and give them some counsel or advice, perhaps even command to, to choose something else to wear. All of that reminds us that what we wear again is significant. Just as it was with dancing, the Scriptures are not silent in principle on that which we wear. To the women and thus in principle to many others in 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verses 8 and following, we learn that dress is to be modest, with shamefacedness and with sobriety, meaning that it must be that which is, again, concealing of that which is to be concealed, but it must also be appropriate in that it presents the kind of thing appropriate for a Christian to wear. 
It is with that in mind today. We come near the close of this lesson in which we can ask, is our life, be it related to clothing or otherwise, a stamp of approval with regard to what the Bible has taught? When others see you and me and that which we wear, do they see a person who stands for the truth? A person whose clothing, in fact, is an admonishment to think on things that are true and honest and pure and just and lovely and of good report. Philippians 4, 8. Or clothing that ventures on the questionable. Clothing that ventures upon the hallucinations and the imagination of the mind to wonder what little may not be concealed. It is a good question, isn't it? And one that begs all of us to notice. We live in a world where a lesson and a thought like this one is often looked upon as you're treading on my personal territory. I can wear what I want, when I want, the way I want. May each of us be reminded, not so for the Christian, for we've been bought with a price. God has the right to dictate what you and I wear. He sent His Son to die for us, and that He did. And so does your body and mine, and that which we use to clothe it, is it a recognition of the fact the body isn't for fornication? Those thoughts lead us in conclusion to this. Abstain from all appearance of evil, and these five lessons have come our way. The body isn't for fornication. The body is the member of Christ. We're commanded to flee fornication. And certainly we're bought with a price. And as such, we should glorify God in the body. Do you and I do that? We are aware that many around us choose not to, but that mustn't deter us. We must, with determination and resolve, choose to so wear clothing that glorifies God by what it covers and also glorifies God by the message it sends. Today, do you and I need to examine ourselves whether we're in the faith? And the answer is yes, 2 Corinthians 13, 5. It might be there's one or more in the audience today who in light of clothing or otherwise has come to realize things in the body have not been for you as they ought to have been. The plan of salvation is certainly given. And if you've at once been a faithful Christian, but you realize that today there are issues in your life of which others are aware, and you'd like to make that right today. It would be a marvelous day of rejoicing, not only for us, for you, but also for the angels in heaven, Luke 13, verses 5 to 8. Today, could we be of assistance in praying for you? We'd be happy to do it. We would only ask that you make a public statement in light of that of which you're repenting and confess that, of course, before God, and we'll pray for your forgiveness. If you have never become a Christian, today's the day to start. Today is the day of salvation, verse 2 of 2 Corinthians 6. And if today we could be of assistance in taking your confession and assisting you in baptism, though, again, would be a day of rejoicing for you, for us, and also, of course, for the great host of heaven. You need to believe Jesus to be the Son of God, repent of your sins, and then come to that point of confession and baptism. If today we can be of assistance, why not today? Why not now? While together we stand and while we sing.